up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Welcome back to this week's episode. I'm here in Zoomland with Elena Melkert, president of Energia Consulting and host of OGGN's Oil and Gas Upstream podcast. For the last 36 years, Elena managed a research portfolio valued at over $300 million for the U.S. Department of Energy focused on spill prevention, well integrity, risk management, sorry, risk mitigation, and environmental sustainability of oil and gas exploration and production operations, both onshore and in the Gulf of Mexico. And now she's living her dream as podcast host for OGGN's Oil and Gas Upstream while being president of her own company. Elena, welcome to the show. How's everything in your world today? Great, great. Thank you so much. It's so much fun to actually be interviewed by you since I took over your show. (laughs) That's kind of fun. No, it is. I think it's great. And, you know, for the listeners out there that have been part of my community now for a while, you know, I used to be with OGGN and then decided to go off on my own, all for good reasons. There's definitely no hard feelings anywhere. I have nothing but the utmost respect for OGGN, Mark, Paige, the whole team. And yeah, they scoured the earth looking for someone to replace me. And Elena happened to be the lucky winner and totally and rightfully so you've crushed it. And I'm so pumped to see you take kind of the baton, if you will, and you did a little name change, which totally makes sense. And here we are. So I have to ask, how is the podcasting world treating you? It's treating me very well. Everybody's been really nice. I actually had to audition to get your spot. So, I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, I did. I had to audition. And then I was selected. And then, you know, Mark and Paige shared it with me. And I was surprised. And so they videotaped that as well. And they put that online as well. Oh, they did. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. I don't know how you'd find it. I guess it'd be through Mark's. I don't know, postings or whatever. But anyway, so so I rehearsed. I wrote a script. I had a what? friend who's a voiceover coach. Like, <laughs> really? Give me feedback. <laughs> so I have a couple of questions with that. So the first one is why? Why did you see, I guess, an audition opportunity and you're like, I want to be a podcast host? Because it's either people, especially with your point in your career, it's like, I'm sorry, like, I don't want anything to do with anything. I just want to ride into the sunset, manage my own company. Now I have to schedule people to talk to this, that, and the other. Like, There's obviously a reason why you decided to get into podcasting. So I'm very eager to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Well, working for the Department of Energy in Washington, D.C., we don't produce oil and gas in Washington, D.C. So my work was, you know, remote, if you will, traveling a lot and talking with new people and just sort of letting people know what the department was doing, the contribution we were making using taxpayer dollars, why it was in their benefit to kind of consider paying attention, if you will, to the research opportunities that the Department of Energy was putting out. My team was located in, well, of course, had people in Washington. And then my team included people in Pittsburgh, people in Morgantown, West Virginia, Albany, New York, and of course, I mean, Albany, Oregon, and then of course, Houston. So it's always been about communicating, talking, not really being, you know, face to face. And then COVID came and everything. But anyway, I got to work with 
wonderful, wonderful, brilliant people, really smart people. So exciting to talk with people, meet new people and whatever, but really get into some of the ideas that they have with respect to technology. So when I retired about a year ago, I missed that. I missed that so much. And I thought, you know, I would love to call people, but I couldn't call people for a year because that's part of the deal when you leave the government. You have to stay away for a year. So I thought, well, what would be fun to do? How could I do this? What excuse would I have to call people and just, you know, and then I don't know, one thought led to another, whatever. And then my daughter got me into listening to podcasts. And Ah, so I I discovered, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I found that, I mean, there's shows on everything. I mean, everything. And then I discovered the Oil and Gas Global Network and Oil and Gas This Week and Market Page and, you know, all that on your shows and I listened to those. I mean, I mean, just sort of one thing and just got interested. And so then I joined the OGGN network on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So then you put out an ad that they were going to audition for podcast hosts and it was your show. And I thought, oh my God, I could do that. (laughs) Nice. Okay. So yeah, that, but that totally makes sense. Now that you explain kind of the progression into how you got listening and then you're like, Hey, wait, like this sounds like a great opportunity to do what I love. And, you know, obviously not cross threads with the DOE and you crush the audition. So tell me about the audition. What did you do? Well, let's see. So there was other people who auditioned and the assignment was to come up with a two minute video on LinkedIn. You had to post it on LinkedIn. You got extra points if you actually posted it on LinkedIn. You could just send it in. But if you posted it on LinkedIn, you got extra points. And you just had to talk about you know, why you wanted to do this, but demonstrate some insight, some humor, some, you know, being comfortable. Those, I mean, there's some guidelines. I don't remember what they are now, Sure. but I thought, oh, I can do this. I can do this. So I yeah. wrote out a little script, like I said, and then I practiced and practiced and practiced. And then I found out that a friend of mine, I mean, not an old friend, but a new friend, her husband does voiceovers. And I thought, Perfect. oh, <laughs> He can hear my audition tape. And he gave me some really good feedback and no way. like that. <laughs> but the bottom line was to just relax, just talk, just, you know, yeah. be yourself as much as possible because, you know, that's the best audition. So that's what I did. And I talked about what I thought the show was about. Mm. authentic conversations with people who know and love the oil and gas industry like I do and what they do and how they do it and maybe some insights and lessons learned. And I talked about how I was boots in the field from Bakersfield, California. I'm not from Bakersfield. That's where I started in the oil business uh, for Getty Oil Company and then Texaco. And then the Department of Energy owned an oil field in Bakersfield. Elk Hills Oil Field is a giant oil field in Kern County, west side of Kern County. So I was a production engineer for the Department of Energy in Bakersfield and then reservoir engineer. So out of my 41-year career in oil and gas, I spent eight of it in the field, four in the private sector, and then four for the government uh, before I came to D.C. So while it was a long time with the Department of Energy, my career is much longer. So I put all of that into two minutes. (laughs) Nice. No, but that's a very interesting story. And I didn't know the Department of Energy owned an actual oil field so do they still no no they sold it no they sold it so the famous oil field that the department of energy owned was teapot dome in wyoming casper wyoming and it was scandalous because president taft 
kind of was selling leases to his buddies kind of thing. And anyway, it just imploded. But the bottom line was the government <laughs> has owned oil fields for a very long time because yeah. of energy security. I mean, of energy course. security. So the oil field in California, Naval Petroleum Reserve Number 1, they call it, 1902 is when it was discovered. And then in 1976, I think, it was put on production because in 73, there was an oil embargo and the Arab oil embargo of 1973 and OPEC embargoed oil would not ship to the United States. And so we were on rationing. I mean, I was 19 at that time. You had to drive your car and put it in line at a gas station. And I've seen pictures. Only- That's crazy. Yeah, it was. It was crazy because being from California, it's all about your car, all about moving around by yourself. There's not a yeah. lot. There, at that time, there wasn't a lot of you know public transportation except for buses, I guess, but here in DC, we've got the metro. I mean, and now, I mean, there's all kinds of options now, but then there wasn't. So anyway, the, I guess it was Carter put it on open up, but they called it when they started producing it. But the government owned, the Navy owned 80% of this Elk Hills and Chevron or Standard Oil California owned the other 20%. And it was on full production. You know, Max, one of my responsibilities as a Rosemary engineer was to calculate the maximum rate of production in order to maximize ultimate recovery. Uh, so that's petroleum engineering, right? So yes, that was kind of the objective was to ensure the maximum value for the country from this resources and these reserves. So, oh, that's so cool. I'd love to dive into all the kind of the projects that you were responsible for. <laughs> Seven presidents. I served seven presidents. So I have so many questions. So the first one, (laughs) talking about, you know, the government owning or the Department of Energy owning oil fields and stuff like that. For the audience, I'm going to take this as a learning opportunity for folks. So the SPR, that's been a big topic of discussion. Does the Department of Energy own the SPR or can you explain that? Yes. So the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, SPR. So after the embargo, was one of the things that the government put into place was for national security, we could never be caught like this again, because at the right. time we were producing like over 60, I mean, we were importing over 60% of what we used. What would you do? What would you do? So they established the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in order to store oil in case of national emergency. The rules are that only the president can release oil because it is such a national treasure and so critical to our security, national security, mm-hmm. that only the president can declare that level of emergency and therefore release oil. But there was a clause that in order to keep it going in, in terms of keeping it active, the pumps working, the procedures in place, you know, it's not just like sitting there idle. It's like it's in readiness. It's always in readiness to mm-hmm. be able to respond to an emergency. And so they could produce, they could withdraw, I should say, but it's just stored. They could withdraw a certain amount of oil in order to just keep the whole system lubricated, if you will, all the procedures in place, all the, and it just determined that everything was in high working order. So they would have periodic tests and those kinds of things. But in terms of release, it's about, you know, being dependent on others for oil for a critical energy form that we needed for national defense protection. So what it is, is it's salt domes along the Gulf Coast that are 
evacuated and then injected or filled with oil. Stored oil is stored there. So it is like a tank, but it's not, you know, metal, it's salt. Of course. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So there's a lot of debate right now, right? And again, more so from a learning objective here, because you, you see a lot of folks saying, well, why is SPR being drained? And if you look at a graph over time, it's just like, it's been sucking down. I think it's still half full at like roughly 400-ish million. And then, you know, it's like, when's the bottom? And why is the government using this as a tool to control gas prices? And can you shine some light and provide a little color as to maybe like what the government's actually doing? And are we in a national security risk? And kind of maybe debunk some of the noise that you hear out there? Because it's kind of hard to decipher. It's like, is this actually what it's there for? Or is this more of a political ploy? Or, I mean, do you have any thoughts towards that? I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> okay, well, here we go. I have lots of thoughts. Okay. Well, so energy is at the core of our national defense and our protection. And these are very dangerous times in the world. Mm -hmm. So one could make an argument that says, we need this oil for our protection. And we don't know when we're going to be attacked. I mean, no one knows when they're going to be attacked. I mean, that's the whole point of attack. It's not like, you, I'm going to attack you on Tuesday, you be ready, you know, right. none of yeah, exactly. that, right? I mean, it's like, you have to stand ready to protect your country. And so I should say something like September 11th. I mean, that was, I was at Pentagon City on September 11th. I mean, that was very scary, very scary yeah. in the whole world. The whole country was scared. Anyway, you need to have your energy resources, hence the establishment of Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So what kind of emergency is enough to want to withdraw oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? I would have to say that high gasoline prices are not an emergency. They're horrible. They're terrible. They're very inconvenient. And for some people, it really is a matter of life, right? Because yeah. they need to get to work. But is it enough to compromise our national security? So those are the kinds of questions you have to think about. Oil is a world market. So how much could we release and be able to move the needle on the oil price? So, you know, we really didn't move the needle much on oil price. And oil is the biggest factor in gasoline prices, right? So the higher the oil price, the higher the gasoline prices. So you can't really affect a world market if you're not producing all you can produce because of policy restrictions. It's complicated, but, you know, once you start untangling, it's kind of like, well, why are we doing that? And why are we doing that? It's really challenging. And I guess I want to offer one other piece for you know, the story is because COP27 is going on right now in Egypt. Yeah. And in 2015, when the Paris Agreement was established, they never said, you know, we're going to eliminate oil. When you look at the um, analyses of energy consumption, that keep at the different scenarios, the two degree scenario, the 1.5 degree scenario, even at the 1.5 degree scenario, the 2050, the end year, 2050 consumption profile is the same as it is now, primarily fossil fuels with renewables and uh, nuclear, you know, sort of, especially renewables, like just dramatically increasing. But even in 2050, there's no replacement for fossil fuels. It's just really hard to do that 
when renewable energy itself is dependent on fossil fuels to to be developed and to have the machinery that you need for it. Yeah. What's confusing is why would you ever think that you have to eliminate a very dense form of fuel when so much is dependent on it? And I'm all for, you know, pulling it out of the air, pulling carbon out of the air. If that's the challenge, carbon sequestration, I'm all for it. I'm for all of the above energy forms. If you live someplace where their sun is always shining, shame on you if you don't have solar. <laughs> if you right. In spaces, places where there's a lot of space and, you know, you can put a wind turbine out there, you know, do it. Why not? But there's really right now and not in 2050, is there a substitute for fossil fuels? So there's a lot of moving parts to that. But some of these things that have been happening, you wouldn't do it in your own home. So why would you cause a whole nation to do that? So Yeah. And again, it's a very complex topic. But at the end of the day, you know, you look at just supply and demand fundamentals. And I always find it interesting looking at these models on peak demand. I think, you know, peak supply has been mentioned a few times. And now if anyone says peak supply, then it's you just kind of laugh because they've tried to say it a few times uh, over the last you know few centuries, but or decades rather. But when you look at, you know, again, I would suspect that just based off the conversation here is it's like, you know, realistically, the full replacement of fossil fuels is kind of a hopes and dreams. But do you suspect that just on the demand side that there's room or necessity for reducing demand or and then again i guess you could look at it in different buckets but just like globally because right now it's roughly around 100 million a day i think we're maybe 98 ish but do you think that in order to reach some of these lofty goals that we really especially in developed nations that we should consider sort of reducing our demand or do you think that as we continue to increase gdp we should meet the demand through just increased supply or like what's your kind of thoughts around that so I guess I have many thoughts and I think it's responsible. There's stewardship associated with natural resources in the world that we should take care of that, that we should be living lives that are helping each other, that are taking care of each other to just live a party life is not something that I condone. And so having all of the best of everything, like how much is enough? Okay. On the other hand, I don't think that we want to go back to a time where people didn't have what they need. We didn't have the, I want to say, security to be able to take care of our families, take care of each other, take care of others who aren't able to take care of this. And I mean, you need a certain amount of energy, but there's extremes. There's people who don't care about, you know, the stewardship. And then there's people who want everyone to go back to the cave times. I mean, those are extreme, but let's not talk about it from the point of view of the United States. Let's talk about it from the point of view of people who are facing survival, just survival. There's people who have to use dung for fuel to cook. You know, why couldn't we help them? And what if they don't have solar energy and wind turbines are pretty sophisticated technological forms. And so nuclear is very sophisticated. But if they have oil and gas resources, why not teach them all of the environmental lessons that we've learned about how to produce oil and gas in a sustainable way and give them for that very small physical footprint on the surface, on the soil, for that very small footprint, give a whole city or a whole village or a whole group of people the energy that they need by using oil and gas. 
And if they do have, if they are able to move forward and build and have the resources to build renewables, build them also. But there's this train, this evolution of the kinds of energy forms that people can use. Now, I'm showing my age again because uh, we didn't have computers, right? When I was growing up and my first computer was after I was working for Getty Oil Company, even though it wasn't a PC, it was a a terminal for a large mainframe, right? There was a big computer over there and this one. And then we had one terminal and the whole team had to share the terminal. So you'd have to book time on the oh terminal to be able to make a spreadsheet. <laughs> so, Jeez. That was it, right. And of course, in the oil and gas sector, we're very sophisticated about data collection, data analysis, analytics, um, you know, big data now moving toward with the machine learning and the artificial intelligence. We're the first ones to use all the memory that any kind of system ever had before. And then they would build more uh, natural systems are just filled with all kinds of data. So that's where that comes from. Yeah. But the point is, what was my point? (laughs) What was I? We were talking about energy poverty and then essentially we should be allowing, you know, depending on where you're at in the world, if you have access to natural resources, you should be able to leverage that and then use developed nations experience and lessons learned in environmental procedures and standards and whatever that looks like to help and support them so that essentially they could probably get to where we're at. Because, you know, to your point, there was a gentleman on LinkedIn. I think he lives in Beaumont, but he's from, I forget where in Africa, but he's from Africa. And he made a post or a comment on one of my posts. And I think it was to do with, you know, the replacement of fossil fuels to some degree. And I ended up jumping on a Zoom call with him. And I said, you know, I sit here with my blinders on essentially here. I'm here in Houston. I have access to pretty much everything. I mean, he's here in Texas now too. So he has access to energy, this and that. But for a good portion of his life, he experienced living in less ideal conditions, less access to energy. And he said, we're almost being punished just for some of these goals. And he's like, we just want to be able to have our hospitals have, you know, electricity and Parents want to be able to have enough, you know, electricity and light to be able to allow their kids to do homework past dark time, or even such thing as like having cement floors. Like I don't want dirt floors, but to be able to manufacture cement, you know, you need electricity. And at the end of the day, is it's like there's a lot of energy inputs that go into the quality of life that we live. And he said, you know, I feel like we're being punished because everyone wants to get rid of oil and gas. It's like, well, we would love to be able to utilize oil and gas because it's, or even coal for that matter. It's him and perhaps folks that he's familiar with are not necessarily worried about the 2050 goals that, you know, the Paris Agreement has set in place. He's worried about making sure the generations that come after him have just, you know, the basic needs like we have here today in the US. And so, Sometimes you have to put yourself in those shoes. I don't suspect that a lot of people, either they do or don't, but perhaps there's other initiatives that go beyond just trying to help the world have access to energy, you know? So to that point, it's challenging to think about sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's the bottom line. I mean, we want to be able to use our natural resources in a way that help everyone. And that means everyone should have a like a personal energy policy. But the other challenge is the notion of critical analysis. Many times people don't stop and think about what they're doing or what they should be doing, or they don't, I don't want to say they don't care, but they're just not sensitive to that. Everybody is affecting everybody else. And 
Well, when there's no direct consequence, it's hard to consider an alternative. You know what I mean? You just kind of go about your business. And unless there's a consequence to your actions and everyone on my street could leave their vehicles running 24 seven and no one's going to say anything. You know what I mean? It's not like all of a sudden the policy police are going to come roaring down the street and be like, you're admitting too much. Stop. But you know, but the reality is like you could run your diesel truck 365 days a year in Houston's. No one's going to say anything. Right, right. So that whole thing about personal responsibility and consequences for your actions or making good decisions. Why? Because we all share this place. So on one point, there's the whole notion of, you know, stop oil and people are ruining paintings, famous paintings for this ideology, but all the things that they're using all came from oil and gas. I mean, how many people are in and in Egypt right now, flew across the world to get to Egypt for COP27. I just... I'm waiting for someone to put the numbers together on how much fuel is burned by bringing everyone to, to Egypt and and then, you know, what the associated emissions are on that. I think that would be somewhat of a comical but interesting data point. <laughs> so... And we would have that data point and we would share that data point. And some people still wouldn't say, oh, well, I still think we've got to get rid of oil. So that's... The frustrating part. It is, right? It's, it's challenging. But I always like to at least consider the argument. And, and I've had folks, because I live in the world of oil and gas, most of the people that have come on have been support of fossil fuels, while some have been more adamant about, hey, like we understand the need for fossil fuels, but we really need to move away from them because of XYZ, which again, I respect. But to talk out of both sides of someone's ear mouth, or at least not be educated enough you know, when you do have a strong stance, not understanding even maybe what you're standing for oftentimes is frustrating. I actually, funny enough, the stop oil movement, the two ladies, and I forget where they're from, maybe is it Norway or Sweden, maybe? I don't know. I forget. But, you know, I saw that and I thought, I said, okay, I could easily sit here and bash them on Twitter, which I'm not going to do. So I messaged them and I said, hey, you know, I found your actions very interesting. Obviously, you have a strong stance against fossil fuels. I have an energy-related podcast. I would love to have you on for you to share your position and perhaps educate my audience as to why you're doing what you're doing. And they responded right away. And they were like, yeah, we'd love to. And then I gave them a time and date, and then they just ignored it. So I don't know if they perhaps maybe dove into who I was and then realized, oh, he's actually like in the US and in oil and gas capacity, like maybe we're going to stay clear. But the initial response was like within minutes. And I was like, this will be awesome. Like I'm having these people on my podcast and I wasn't going to bash them. I was genuinely trying to understand and hopefully maybe educate them just a little bit if they were open to it. And then on the flip side, they can maybe educate me and maybe I would learn something that i didn't know. And so I wanted that opportunity, but they never ended up responding when I gave them a time and date to get on Zoom. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about in the sense that people don't really think about what they're saying or what they're doing. There's no critical analysis. There's no basis. There's no assessment of some key facts and putting that story together and then saying, okay, what makes the most sense out of this information and what is the best thing to do. I mean, these are not easy problems. These are very tricky problems, but everybody's got a brain to add a little bit to the answer, right? I mean, (laughs) and the one person doesn't know everything, right? No one person knows everything about everything, but 
you have these conversations, you kind of help each other, you kind of think of something new. I mean, I worked in the world of research and innovation for over 30 years. You don't know where a good idea is going to come. And most of the time, it starts with a conversation about something that you don't know about. And you just start taking a closer look and start chipping away at some of the logics, thing, tipping away at some of the things you know, identifying what exactly do we not know? Well, how could we figure that out? And kind of getting to it and that's good for political decisions, social decisions, financial decisions, all the decisions that you need to make in your life. I mean, that's the reality of having conversations mm-hmm. with people and sharing your thought. Everybody gets better, I want to say. When that's you true. That. And I couldn't agree more. And I want to ask, I mean, you started your career you know, in the energy sector years ago. You obviously were exposed to a lot. You talked about the oil embargo. You probably saw a lot of interesting and fascinating technology get deployed and put to use to access energy, to produce energy. But I'm curious, kind of taking a 30,000 foot view, looking back, do you have any core beliefs around energy that you've changed your mind on over the last few years, you know, with especially with all the information and research you've done and kind of sitting in the chair you're in now, it's like, you know what, like, maybe I don't have as much conviction towards X. Well, I have had, as you say, lots of experiences. So I'm from California, from Southern California, and growing up, or I shouldn't say growing up, but in college, there was this position or school of thought that oil and gas is bad, 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 and I believed it. Mm. So when I got married and moved to Bakersfield, California, and I met my husband at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, he's a biologist, I was a soil scientist and graduated in soil science, and he graduated before I did, got a job, moved to Bakersfield, so we got married, I moved to Bakersfield. And Bakersfield had two options for soil. One was in agriculture and one was in oil, as it turned out. And so the oil job had more money and it was to extract oil from a surface deposit of diatomaceous earth. And so this was, you know, we're side of Kern County, Bakersfield. And I went to work there and I started realizing and understanding just how important it was to have you know, energy, secure energy, sources of energy, oil was one of those sources. And then I still was having this conditioning before thinking about oil and gas. I was still a little bit, I don't want to say embarrassed, but a little bit shy to put out there that I was in the oil business. And then I came to Washington. I was still having those same kinds of feelings. But then when I was asked to be part of the international oil and gas team on the Western Hemisphere. I started traveling and I started seeing how other people live. I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, quality of life for people is really tied to their natural resources and how their governments, the decisions their governments make to use those natural resources for the good of the people. And I started realizing what an essential natural resource oil and gas was to be able to improve the quality of life for people around the world. Well, at least in the Western Hemisphere. And I traveled Mm. South America, you know, Mexico, Canada. And so that was really where I started to realize I'm doing a really, really important thing. So that was the first kind of mind shift. Mm. So now in the last few years, as we have been trying to address the climate change or the global warming or whatever, that's had a name change over the course of you know my career as well. And what I've concluded now is that it is all of the above because of lots of reasons. It's all of the above. 
to the point where I'm even considering what would be the answer for electric vehicles? What would be the answer? Because I see the cars lined up trying to charge, can't charge. I mean, there's all kinds of challenges. So I decided that the only way you can really get to, and it's a pretty good idea, when you, the only way you can really get to like universal EVs is if everybody has distributed power generation, if everybody has their own way to generate power. And so what are those options? Well, there's still gas, there's still oil. There's fuel cells, they're not nuclear, but I mean, they're fuel cells, right? There's lots of different ways to generate power, but that's the way that you can have a secure source of electricity for your cars. And so there's challenges with that as well, but at least you have some control over that. I mean, not everybody has a charging station at home, right? Or can do that, right? Not everybody lives in a single family dwelling. So you'd still be, you know, sharing. Then the other part is if there's urgency to remove a certain amount of carbon from the atmosphere, then do that. Put some sort of carbon capture at the end of your tailpipe, you know, something, you know, it doesn't have to be a giant, massive, big machine thing. It could be individual choices, modular, remote. It could be all kinds of different technologies depending on your situation, your price point, what kind of vehicle you have or whatever you have a car. You know, being creative and inclusive means being creative and inclusive of other ideas and just being dependent on one thing. It hasn't worked for us in terms of history. It's never going to work, right? You can't just depend on one thing. You have to have some choices, some options. You have to give people choices and options because we're all different and we deserve to be different and we have the privilege of being different. So there's different solutions for different situations and one size does not fit all. That's absolutely true. And you mentioned, you know, you kind of had sort of some ideas of different technologies and just throwing little ideas out and stuff like that. But I'm curious, what emerging technologies excite you the most with with energy production right now? Is is anything come to mind? Well, right now what's exciting me is, you know, petroleum engineers have the core skill sets for subsurface. And there's a lot of subsurface opportunities. And so that's what's exciting to me right now. It's not just about oil and gas. It's something like I'm not a petroleum engineer anymore. I am now a subsurface engineer. And that's very exciting because it uses a lot more of your skill sets and it adds a lot of new features to your skill set. For example, as a soil scientist, I learned a lot about how soil is formed from rock and sedimentary formations. And so a sedimentary formation is really soil (laughs) moving and the orbital burden kind of pushing it together and creating these places where there are seals where the organic matter can turn into oil and gas and, you know, be there. And then we can tap into it. That's conventional reservoirs. And then you get into unconventional reservoirs where the permeability is so, so tiny that even a precipitate can block some feature of the permeability. And so the notion of hydraulic fracturing is really important, but the fractures can be very, very narrow themselves, right? So again, chemistry becomes very important, understanding geochemistry and those very nanoscale processes. So opening up subsurface engineering opens up geochemistry, microbiology, soil microbes. I mean, there's just so much more science that goes into understanding the subsurface. Yeah, Um, that is. It's not just about engineering, which 
So I feel like I speak two languages, right? One of science and one of engineering, because I'm a soil scientist, I'm a scientist and an engineer. And I actually love the engineering, but I love when it's informed by all this other extra science. And now with all the data analytics and the moving toward AI and being able to visualize the subsurface, we can visualize very, very small processes. It'll give our best computer, our brain, an opportunity to, to be creative. We'll just see things in a different way. Maybe something will occur to us because we don't use all of our brains. So there's still yeah. a lot more up there. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's so crazy. I mean, I have so many different avenues I'd like to go down and, you know, I could swear I could be here for like three more hours, but <laughs> I was going to pivot. And before I pivot, because I do want to talk about Energia and, you know, some of the initiatives you have going on there. But before I do that, as you were talking, I was thinking, because I didn't realize your extensive background in soil engineering and, and reservoir and everything else. I'm curious, you know, obviously the shale revolution put, you know, the U.S. energy supply it took us from zero to a hundred. You know what I mean? Like we just, we ramped up, we were able to produce, you know, it was for us, it was arguably the biggest shift in energy for us in a long time that that really positioned us as being very independent, allowed us to become exporter, you know, net exporters. And, you know, now we're, we've got a button of gas and it's just like, here we are, but I'm very exposed to, to, you know, a lot of oil and gas operators. My day job is on the oil field service side. So I get to hear things and often in times in their offices talking about whether it's tier one acreage or some of the wells that are coming online. I mean, ultimately, you know, the inventory that operators have now, the acreage, you know, everything else without sort of another, I don't know if you want to call it a shell revolution, but another sort of leap in technology that would allow us to sort of produce wells at a far greater efficiency, perhaps get more out of the same well, it's going to challenge our production. Because right now, even it's like around 12 million, bounces between 11, 9, 12 million. But like for us to get to say meet demand of maybe getting to 13 or even 14 million, I just don't know if we have enough rig power and frac fleet power to be able to do that. So I say that to say, my question is, do you suspect that in, or do you see anything coming down the pipeline in the near future of like a shale revolution 2.0? Or do you think there's a way that we could essentially, because from what I understand, there's a lot of hydrocarbons still locked within the reservoir that we just can't economically get out of the ground. Do you think that there's going to be another revolution to come or we're going to have to find one in order to produce what we need to over the next, call it five to 10 years? Yeah. So I have thought about that and I thought about it, you know, when I was director of stream oil and gas, because that was, you know, what can we do to help, right? Because the recovery factors from unconventionals are so low. And it occurred to me that even in conventional reservoirs, two thirds of the oil is still there. We know exactly where it is, but we can't get it out. But what happened was in 2008, for example, 2007, when we started seeing the development of unconventionals, people abandoned thinking about conventionals. And we've never really applied all of this advanced technology, all this advanced analytics, all of this uh, nanotechnology to conventional reservoirs. We just sort of have walked away. And so it seems to me that that's, with all that permeability there, <laughs> Let's be easier to get there. Now, maybe we've lost access to the lease or, you know, maybe they're abandoned well. I mean, just a lot of challenges with conventional, but I don't know that we need a fancy revolution. I don't know if we need hugely innovative technologies. 
we have a resource that we haven't examined. And we have a lot more tools than we had the last time we looked and a lot greater insights. And being able to model and to take all of the geologic parameters and convert them into numbers and do analyses of these types with all of these supercomputers. I mean, we've got a lot of tools, but we just haven't asked the right questions of ourselves as to how do you pursue what's the best thing to do with conventional reservoirs, the was ROZ, residual oil zone, what kinds of controls on injection can we put to have better sweep efficiency? I mean, we know so much more because of unconventionals and the new technologies applied that we've never just really taken that kind of look at unconventional. So I'm hoping that there's a conventional (laughs) evolution. (laughs) Yeah. Just when we think we're at our wits end or we're kind of reached the end of the line, technology and, and humanity does a wonderful way of breaking that down and moving forward. So I have no doubts we'll, we'll get there. In the interest of time, I can't believe we're already here at you know, half past the hour. But if you got a couple minutes, I just have a couple last things I want to ask you. So talk about Energeo. I mean, you retire from the DOE. Now you've got this company and I'm sure you're just thriving with that. But tell us, what is Energia and, and what do you offer to the market? Yeah, yeah. So Energia, I don't know, my husband suggested that I do this. Okay. I loved working for the Department of Energy. I loved doing what I did. I loved investing in new technologies. I loved talking with the brilliant people who came up with these innovations and these great ideas. And I really wasn't able to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I'll just leave it at that. Well, there just wasn't support for oil and gas. Understood. And so I was certainly retirement eligible for a long time before I actually retired. So when I retired, I was missing it. I was missing the people. I was missing the challenges. I mean, you just can't go from, you know, an international kind of point of view on a commodity that is fundamental to everyone's way of life to nothing. (laughs) I play golf. I play guitar. I sing. You know, I have lots of hobbies. But you just can't do that all the time when you've just recently retired. So I spent all my time when I first few weeks, first couple months was listening to all the things on LinkedIn, you know, SPE webinars here, you know, GTI webinars over there. I mean, just all kinds of energy related webinars and learning things online. And I'd hear my friends talk and, you know, it's just like, really, I just kind of was building this little world of myself. My husband says, well, you really need to do something. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting in a podcast all the time and webinars. And I said, well, I just really miss, you know, all of this. Yeah. He says, well, you know, maybe you could do some consulting, you know, you know, stuff, you know, people, I mean, there's some things that you can help. So I started thinking about that. And I thought, well, what would I do? What could I do? I remembered that when I was director and we would have competitions for new technologies, right, making new investments, and we put out a solicitation and we're entertaining proposals to solve this problem, craft this nut, you know, what do you got? You know, we'd like to make an investment. Government would pay 80% and the researcher would pay, or the investors with the partners would pay 20% of the research. And so these was fabulous public private partnerships just, you know, really, really did a lot of work in that area. Anyway, there would be good ideas, but the proposal wasn't very well written. You know, at the time I'd be so frustrated. I really love this idea, but I can't invest in it because 
when you work for the government or when you're using government dollars, you have to dot all those I's and cross all those T's and you have to actually really have your written word as well as your expressed as well as your idea truly is. And so good ideas don't get funded because they don't know how to write proposals. And then there's other organizations that are like proposal machines, you know, any old idea, you know, get a proposal out there. So I thought if I ever have a chance to help people with good ideas, kind of compete for these dollars, that's what I want to do. So what Energia does is helps people, once they've written a proposal, we don't write proposals. Once their proposal is written, we test it. We evaluate it against the criteria that's in the solicitation that says we're going to evaluate all the proposals on these criteria. And so we do that. And then we give people feedback on how to improve their proposal to be more competitive. So that's why I don't talk about my client because it's, you know, research is really a small area to be perfectly honest, a small area. So we just don't talk about clients, but so I get to talk with really smart people, (laughs) get insights of really good ideas and I feel like I'm helping. So, and I get paid. So good for you. That is absolutely cool. Good for you. I mean, you found kind of your niche and what you enjoy doing and now you get to pursue it between that and podcasting. Well, that's where the podcasting comes in. I can't, talk about what I do. So the podcasting is a way to kind of take care of that because I was giving presentation. I mean, I just was the director for upstream oil and gas research at the Department of Energy. That was kind of fun. So good for you, Elena. That is super neat. Well, with that said, I'm going to close out with one last question. You said you like to sing. Oh, yes. So, I mean, if you love to sing, now is your chance. What's your best line? Sing it and with your, like, sing your heart out for at least 10 seconds. Don't know why there's no sun up in the skies. Stormy weather with my man and I ain't together. It's raining all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. I'm so happy you did that. Whenever people, <laughs> that was amazing, by the way, you have a beautiful voice. So you Thank should definitely, you. hopefully you get to use that a lot. When sometimes when people say what their hobbies are and they're like, oh, I like to do this or do that. I'm always, you know, like this one lady said that she had done yodeling at some oh. point. So I was like, well, now's your chance to yodel on the podcast. And she was like, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. She ended up singing, I think, the National Anthem or something. I forget what she's saying, but you didn't even hesitate. You just went right in. That was amazing. Thank you for doing that. I love it. Give me a microphone. All kinds of talents. This is good. Do you like karaoke? You know, I'm not very good at karaoke because you actually have to do it like the music. Right. Okay. So you've got your own style and you just let it rip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's fun with people. I mean, karaoke is fun, you know, with people and like that. I actually do sing with some high school friends, right? I mean, that high school was 50 years ago. But high school friends, there's this app called Acapella. And okay. you record your piece and then you send it to the next person. They record their piece. So there's like all these musicians and a couple of three singers. And we record for each other and share with our friends. <laughs> no way. That is awesome. Yeah, it's not very fancy, but it is so much fun. It is so much fun. We harmonize. You know, no fun. way. Yeah, yeah. And you do that with your old high school buddies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? So where do you live now? In Virginia, Northern Virginia, near Washington, D.C., uh-huh. suburb. Okay. Does the snow hit there yet, or is it still? 
No, we just are finishing a glorious fall, glorious fall. And so what happens is the leaves start turning and depending on the temperature, like it has to be cold and the colder it gets, the we had a gentle cooling, I want to say, because fall lasted a long time, like three weeks, where the leaves are turning, turning, turning. So while they're falling, they leave them on the ground. So just today, they just started picking up the leaves and whatever all over the neighborhood. So on all the streets, I mean, all the streets are covered with leaves right now. So yeah. it's passing, but it's not snowing yet. When you talk about the you know fall colors and everything else, that that's a taste of home for me because I'm originally from Canada. Oh, that's right. Yeah, from born in Calgary, raised in British Columbia. So definitely got to experience all seasons. Now here in Houston, it's either hot, warm, or kind of cold-ish. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with Houston weather. And yeah, so it's cool to hear that I get to visualize it. And when I talk to friends and family from back home, I, I get a taste, but that's good. So do you have family around there as well? Or is that? I uh, know I'm from Southern California. My husband's from Northern California. So I have a brother and a sister. There? Lots of reasons. Mostly I'm mad at California right now. So oh, I'm started. why? Why? Politics. Okay. Um, just, Another, we'll save this yeah. for round two. <laughs> That's round two, round two. We'll do an episode why Elena hates California. <laughs> I don't hate it. I just don't want to live there right now. But okay. I have a sister and a brother who do live in Orange County. And then I have another sister who lives in Atlanta. So we've been a bi-coastal family for a long time. It makes for a great excuse to go travel to some beautiful places. I went to Southern California for the first time and I had an amazing time. I loved it. Yeah. Talk about lack of seasons. That's lack of seasons. Yeah. That good 10 point. degrees, summer to winter. That's it. 10 degrees. Again, when they say blue skies, sunny and 75 degrees every day, it was pretty much that for like a week straight. It was amazing. And then the beach. Yeah. My kids loved it. We took them there. We went to Disneyland, the whole thing. So anyway, aside from you know all the noise, I think California is cool and I, I love the vibe. I'm a West Coast boy myself. So there's a little bit of uh, similarity there too. So yeah. anyway, Elena, this has been amazing. Tell the <laughs> audience where they can find your podcast, where they can connect with you if they want to maybe hire Energia. Where's the best place to reach out? So in terms of connecting, reaching out, LinkedIn, right? Yeah. Elena Melker. E-L-E-N-A. Yeah. <laughs> Lena Belkert. And then the podcast is OGGN, Oil and Gas Global Network. Yeah, OGGN, Oil and Gas Global Network. And the podcast is Oil and Gas Upstream. There you and go. And they just dropped a new show yesterday. I was saying Wednesday. Yeah, yesterday. Yeah. So talked with uh, Dr. Bjorn Paulson in Van Nuys on his technology that he's well, he's a borehole seismologist. And so it's about tracking fractures. Where's the fracture? You've got this technology, puts little little balls inside of the fracture with the sand and it yes. travels out. And so anyway, very cool. So that was a new show. Yeah, new show. So that's kind of fun. So yeah, between the podcast at Oil and Gas Upstream and then the LinkedIn. Oh, and then my website is Energia Consulting LLC. It's not the most. <laughs> hey, that's okay. You just have to type it in once and then it auto-populates from there. So that's it's all right. good. That's yeah. right. Perfect. Well, for all the listeners out there, reach out to Elena. Obviously, she has a wealth of knowledge and I just encourage everyone to connect, listen to the podcast, support her any way you can. 
And Elena, thank you for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I wish you nothing but the best. Here to support you, OGGN. We're one big happy family here in the energy space. And so it's been absolutely cool to see you take the torch and keep it burning. And for all the listeners out there, thank you so much for the support. Please leave a review, subscribe, share it with your buddies, family, and friends. And reach out to me if you'd like to sponsor the show. I still have some sponsorship opportunities out there. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, or you can email me, whichever is easier. If you visit the website, wickedenergy.io, all my contact information is there. Until next time, always remember that everyone deserves access to energy, and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.